0: All right, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14 is where we're going to be this morning. I knew we would have a family service uh, today after the storms, and so I decided today would be a good day to talk about adultery. Uh, now, listen, I know who's in the room, so parents who may be a little nervous, I just want you to know I'm aware of who's in the room. I'm going to be very sensitive about this as careful as I can, okay? But uh, we are in a series right now through the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Where this happens to be the next commandment, okay? And so I'm just trusting the Lord's timing in this, and uh, He knows what He's doing. Uh, but we're going to look together at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14 as we talk this morning about God's plan for marriage. Now, the ancient city of Sardis, uh, in the ancient world, had a, uh, had a citadel that was an impregnable stronghold. You can see, uh, Lord Willen, uh, if our technology is working this morning, there it is. Thank you, Lord. Uh, you can see a picture of the ancient citadel of the city of Sardis. It was situated on the top of a mountain. It was surrounded by thick walls, and it was a fortress that was described by the historian Polybius as the strongest place in the world. But in 547 BC, King Cyrus of Persia attacked Sardis. He laid a siege to the city that lasted for two weeks. Now, uh, they tried to break through that citadel multiple times unsuccessfully because this is, it's an impregnable force. It's a, it's a fortress. It's a stronghold. But after multiple attacks on the city of Sardis had been defended successfully, something unusual happen. And the historian Herodotus tells us about this. The the, the historian Herodotus tells us that there was a soldier of Sardis who was up in that citadel and dropped his helmet. Down came the helmet over the walls, and that soldier tried to retrieve the helmet by climbing down a secret hidden pathway. And a Persian soldier saw the soldier from Sardis climb down through that pathway, get his helmet, and then climb back up into the citadel. And the Persian soldier realized this fortress had a point of vulnerability. There was a weak spot in the wall, and he exploited that weak spot and led a bunch of Persians through that secret pathway up into the citadel where they destroyed the, the soldier's From Sardis, and they ultimately won that battle. You see, the Persians understood that if you can find a vulnerable weak point in the wall of defense, you can exploit it in order to destroy your enemy. Now I want you to think about that as we think about Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14, the seventh of ten commandments that God gives, because I told you a couple of weeks ago that Satan hates you. You need to write that down because that's a very serious spiritual reality. Satan hates you. Satan wants to destroy your life. And what Satan will do is he will often look for a point of weakness in our lives in order to exploit it, and he will attack us at that point of vulnerability in order to destroy us. He wants to destroy you. And one of the ways that he attacks us, that point of vulnerability that he often tries to exploit is, is our marriages. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments over the last several weeks. I, I've told you the Ten Commandments have uh, three purposes, essentially. Number one, they show us what God's design is for our life. It's a good design. Every commandment shows us something about God's character, something about what God is like. And as a loving father who loves his children, God gives to Israel these Ten Commandments, to show them how life functions best. But we know that there's a second purpose for the law, the Ten Commandments, because none of us live up to God's design. We all fail at some point with the Ten Commandments and many points with the Ten Commandments. And so the second purpose of the law is it is a sign that points us forward to our need for Christ because not a single one of us can keep God's law. Amen? And we know that even if we can keep some of God's law, our law-keeping does not merit Favor with God. And so we need Jesus to deliver us from our own sinfulness. So the second purpose of the law is it's a sign that points us forward to our lawlessness and our need for Christ and God's provision for us of His Son Jesus who can rescue us. But then once you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, there's a third purpose of the law, and that is it's meant to refine us. God uses the Ten Commandments in our lives as Christian people who've been redeemed by God's grace, who've been justified through the work of Jesus. God uses the Ten Commandments in our lives to refine us to look more and more like Christ. In other words, it helps us understand how to live Christ-like lives. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, we realize this. It is a, the Ten Commandments, they are a gift that are given to us for our good. Amen? Amen. And so with that in mind, I want you to think about the Seventh Commandment because it shows us God's plan that is for our good. God's plan for marriage is for our good. Good. It is not meant to be restrictive. It is not meant to harm us. It's not meant to restrict our joy. Actually, quite the opposite. God's design for marriage is good and it's for our good. So, with that in mind, let's look at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14 and see what God has to say about marriage. It says simply this do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. So, God's plan for marriage that brings Him the greatest glory. And us, the greatest good, is that our marriages should be characterized by faithfulness. Okay, if you want a marriage that is glorifying to God and that is for your good, then God's plan for marriage is that our marriages should be characterized by faithfulness. So I want you to think about three simple truths with me this morning about marriage and what God has to say about the issue of marriage and adultery and uh, this is not a Father's Day message per se, but let me just say to you dads, if you're married, the, one of the greatest gift, gifts that you can give to your kids is to be faithful to your spouse. And your kids, listen, a strong marriage is the best thing for your kids. And so if you'll focus on your marriage, you focus on loving your wife the, la- the way Christ loves the church, then that will help you to be a great dad, okay? But here's, here's three truths I wanna share with you this morning quite simply, uh, uh, about marriage. Number one, I want you to understand that God has a good design for marriage. God has a good design for marriage. Now, God's design for every area of our life is good. it's, It's good and it's for our good. What can we learn about God's design for marriage? Well, certainly Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14 tells us something about his design, that he's designed marriages to be characterized by faithfulness. But I, I think actually, if you really want to understand God's design for marriage, you need to go back to where, does, where marriages were first created. And so you need to go back to the book of Genesis. So I'm going to invite you to stick your finger in Exodus 20, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, which is where we find the very first marriage in the Bible. And that's the marriage between Adam and, Adam and Eve. And so we're going to read about it in Genesis chapter 2. And I want to just point out a few things about how God has designed, how He's created marriage to work best. Look at Genesis chapter 2. It's going to be on the screens here, but let me begin reading in uh, verse 18. I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. And then I want to just point out several features of marriage uh, according to God's design. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. All the men in the house said, Amen. It's not good for man to be alone. So I will make a helper corresponding to him. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found that was corresponding to him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, it, an interesting thing, in the Hebrew language, uh, Moses actually uses a different word here to describe the creation of woman. He says that God made man, but in Hebrew he says he fashioned the woman. I just think that's interesting to note. He took his time with Eve and Eve fashioned her. Okay, take that and do with it what you will. That's totally free this morning, okay? And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will will be called Isha, woman, because she was taken from Ish, man, she called woman, she was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother, and the old King James cleaves to his wife. Uh, CSB translates this, he bonds with his wife. The Andrew Standard Version, he's superglued to his wife. (laughs) And they become one flesh, and both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. And all the kids said, ew. (laughs) Okay, so let me just point out a few things here about marriage according to God's design. Number one, marriage is created by God. Uh, Marriage is God's idea, not our idea. Marriage is actually the first thing that God makes in terms of an institution. He doesn't create government first. He doesn't even create the church first. He creates marriage first. Uh, It says in verse 22 that God makes this woman and he brings her to the man. So we see God's initiative in this relationship. By the way, that's why God gets to define marriage. God gets to say what marriage is because marriage is made by God. So God... Creates it, he gets to control it. Does that make sense? It's, it's his creation, and so he gets to define it. So the first thing we ought to recognize is this is not a human creation. This is not a human invention. This is something that God has made. It's created by God. Number two, it involves, marriage involves one man and one woman. One man and one woman. Now, that's fairly obvious and straightforward. You wouldn't think we would need to say that today, but I do need to say it. Because of the chaos that we are at in our culture. But you see that God creates Adam and he creates Eve. He he makes a helper for Adam. A helper, not two, not three, not four. No animal could do it. Not another man. Uh, No piece of technology. Adam was alone. God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. He creates a helper and he creates a woman that He brings to her. And so we see that not only marriage is created by God, it's it's between one man and one woman. Number next, marriage is a lifelong friendship. It's a lifelong friendship. Friendship is such a wonderful word to use here because that's really what it describes. Uh, 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 That really describes marriage well. It is a friendship and it's for life. Notice in verse 18, it's not good for man to be alone. God didn't create us to do life by ourselves. Now, sometimes God gives the gift of singleness to someone. But even someone who has the gift of singleness or they happen to be single, you're still not called to do life alone. We would still say it's not good for people to be alone. That's why we have the church. We have a family of faith. We have a community of believers. If you've experienced divorce or something like that and you find yourself today alone, recognize God doesn't want you to be alone. So he gives you a family called the church. But in the context of marriage, God brings a woman to the man and they are to enjoy a lifelong friendship, a companionship. Number, number four, The Bible tells us that marriage is an exclusive relationship. Notice this in verse 24, Adam and Eve were to leave father and mother. Leave father and mother and be joined to one another. So there's a sense in which they're leaving behind a certain relationship in order to be joined to each other. That means that there is an exclusivity to marriage. And once you get married, you ought to still have a good relationship with your family. You ought to still call mom and dad. Amen. All of those types of things, but there's a sense in which this relationship now takes precedence over your other relationships. Once you get married, I tell this to young couples who are getting married all the time. Uh, to, the, to the women, I say, Listen, uh, your, your husband needs to come before Girls Night Out. To the guys, I say, You need to stop calling mom every day. Okay? <laughs> your wife comes before mama. Okay, because there's a sense in which you leave behind some other relationships, and this is an exclusive relationship between the husband and the wife. Number, whatever n- number I'm on, what is it, number five? Uh, marriage helps us serve God better together than we could alone. Okay, if you're single today and you're wondering, should I get married? Uh, ask yourself this question, can I, can I serve God more faithfully with a spouse than I can without? Uh, some of you may not be able to answer that in the affirmative. You might be able to say, I can serve God more faithfully as a single person. Uh, I've got a friend who felt called to the Middle East as a missionary. He said, I really have struggled with this whole idea of, should I get married? Uh, Because I have a freedom as a single person to go serve God uh, in the Middle East that I wouldn't if I was... If I was married, you need to really wrestle through that question. But if the answer is yes, I can serve God better with my spouse than I can by myself, then that's a good signal that maybe the Lord is calling you to marriage. And you see that even here in verse uh, 20, Uh, God brings uh, Adam a helper corresponding to him. Now, what was the helper supposed to help with? Well, she was supposed to help tend the garden, right? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God puts Adam in a garden to take to work it and to watch over it, and he needed help. And so here he brings Eve and Adam and Eve together, now co-labor. They share the responsibility of tending the garden, and they're able to fulfill their commission and their mandate from the Lord better together as a couple than they could by themselves. And so one of the purposes of marriage, it's not primarily for us to be able to have romantic experiences. It's not primarily for us to just be happy or not be lonely. The primary purpose for marriage is for us to be able to serve God together better together than we could alone. Number, thank you, six. <laughs> Number six, marriage involves relational unity and intimacy. You see that in verse 24. A man leaves his father and mother behind, and then he, the old, the old word is cleaves to his wife. That's a weird word, but it means Bonds. It means gets attached to, or my, my translation, superglue. Uh, he's super glued to his wife. There's a unity and an intimacy and a closeness that God has designed for marriage to, to have. Uh, the way I like to think about marriage is like a piece of plywood at Home Depot. Okay, if you go to, to Home Depot, you see plywood. It's multiple different uh, sheets of wood that have been very tightly super glued together to where it's like one piece, right? There's a sense in which two people become one. And that's God's design, is that there's an intimacy that happens, and a closeness, and right, an exclusivity that happens between the husband and the wife. And then finally, marriage, according to God's Word, is for our joy. Marriage is for our our joy. That's how God has designed it to work. You see it in verse 25, they were naked and unashamed. Now, let me just talk about the idea of being unashamed for a second, because before marriage, if you're naked with someone, there is shame, but in marriage… You can be naked with your spouse, and there's no shame. And that tells us something about God's design, that He's actually designed marriage to give you the most amount of joy, to give you delight without shame. Uh, Delight with no shame is a wonderful gift. And that's to be experienced in the context of marriage. So that's God's design, okay? One man, one woman, for life, under God, exclusive, intimate. For our joy. That's God's good design for marriage. I tell married, uh, young married couples, uh, young premarital couples all the time that marriage is a lifelong, Christ centered, covenantal friendship with benefits and responsibilities. Okay? Every word of that matters. It's a lifelong, Christ centered, covenantal friendship that has benefits and also responsibilities. That's God's good design for our marriage. And that lifelong covenantal friendship is for our good. You know, that God gives us marriage as a gift to make us more like Christ. That's really the purpose of marriage, is for our sanctification, it's for our holiness. In fact, sometimes people, and I've talked to couples who are getting married, I'll always ask them this question, why are you getting married? Nine times out of 10, I'll get some version of this answer. Well, she makes me happy. And I say, that's a terrible reason to get married. Don't get married if that's what you're looking for, because she won't always make you happy. Don't say amen to that, okay? Do not say amen to that, guys. Dads, I'm looking out for you right now. She won't always make you happy, and you won't always make her happy. So if happiness is the goal, don't get married. But if holiness is the goal, then marriage is a laboratory for holiness. Marriage is that that sanctification workshop (laughs) where God begins to chip away all the things that don't look like Christ. And that's really the purpose for it is to to become more like Jesus through this human relationship called called marriage. You know, Colossians 1.16 says that all things are made for him. All things, let me tell you what that means in Greek. All things, okay, that's what it means, all things. That that means, listen to me, dating is for him. Romance is for him marriage is for him. It's a trick of the enemy to think that marriage is a gift for us. It is partially for us, but primarily it's for him. And so we approach our marriages not thinking about how, does, how am I happy or not happy. If that's the basis of your marriage, you're going to be out of it before long because you're going to be unhappy before long because you're married to a sinner. And sinner's sin. Is that brilliant or what? I'm, uh, Sinners sin, and you're married to one, and you are one, which means you're going to sin against one another. You're going to hurt each other, and you're not always going to be happy. And so if happiness is the basis of your faithfulness, you're going to be unmarried before too long. But if holiness is the purpose of your marriage, then even an unhappy marriage has purpose. Because God may use your unhappiness to shape you to be content in Christ to love Christ above all other things, to find in Christ your greatest joy rather than a spouse. And God might even use an unhappy marriage to shape you into Christ, into Christ-likeness. And so we say all things are for Him. That means marriage is for Him. It's for my joy, and it's for my ultimate Christ-likeness. Okay, that was one point, all right? I'm going to move quickly through the next two, okay? God has a good design for marriage, but We also know that sin brings damage to God's good design for our lives. So even though we can look at Genesis 2 and say, this is what it ought to look like, it very infrequently looks like that. Right? We all know relationships, maybe you've experienced this yourself, where marriage doesn't look like that. Why is that? Well, it's because sin brings damage to what God has created to be good. God has designed this relationship to be for our joy, but it doesn't always bring us joy. God has designed uh, this relationship to be exclusive, but it's not all, it doesn't always look exclusive. And, and so that brings great harm. And so with every area of our life, when we, when we don't live out God's design, whether it's intimacy or marriage or, or finances or anything else, if we don't live according to God's design, it, it brings great harm. And so we're sinful, we're broken, we re- rebel against God's good plan for us. And in the context of marriage, one of the ways that we do that is through adultery So adultery is simply this, it's an unfaithfulness to the covenant that we've made before God. Adultery is a breaking of promises. It's a going outside of the boundaries that God has created for relational intimacy and trying to find it elsewhere. And when we do that, it dismantles and disfigures God's good design. Listen to me, marriage is the only safe context in which physical and romantic intimacy should be expressed. And so physical intimacy that starts before marriage or happens outside of marriage is going outside of the boundary that God has created for us and trying to find that fulfillment in an illicit way. That is... Uh, you know, if you think about physical or romantic intimacy, it's like nuclear power. Nuclear power can, can be a great good used in the right way, but it can also be a great dis, a, a destructive harm if it's used in the wrong way, right? So we have nuclear energy. When that nuclear power is, the power is harnessed in a constructive and a productive way, it produces something that's very good and healthy and right. But when that nuclear power is used in harmful ways, it's incredibly destructive. It's all depending on how that's used. And so if you think about physical or romantic intimacy within marriage, God has created that for our good, for our joy, to be used creatively and productively for our good, but used outside of marriage, it destroys. Let me just tell you, folks, God is not against your sexual joy. He created it. It was his design. It's not like God walked up in Genesis chapter 2, saw Adam and Eve and said, oh my gosh, what are you doing? God creates this. He's for your joy in that way. But he knows that a good gift used the wrong way becomes a harmful weapon. And so we understand that sin brings great damage. God's design. So as we think about the sin of adultery, a couple of things to consider. First of all, as you look at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14, you find that the sin of adultery is a deliberate act. Notice he says, do not commit adultery. I think it's important to consider that word commit. Do not commit adultery. Adultery is never accidental. It's not something you slip into. And sometimes people talk about it that way. Oh, it was an accident or or just kind of fell into it. No, you didn't. It's never accidental. It is something that you commit through compromise or through choice. It's a deliberate willfulness to cross a boundary line. It's a decision to rebel against God's design. And rebellion against God always leads ultimately to misery. If you think about it, there are places in the world where you can go today. If you travel old war zones, there are sometimes places where you can go and you'll see a fence And there's a sign on that fence that says, beyond this fence is a field of undetonated landmines. Now, that fence is for your good. It's for your protection. It's for your joy. What that fence says is if you go over the other side of this fence, if you cross that boundary, it will destroy you. God has created marriage to be a boundary line for us. And that's not a restriction. It's actually freedom because you can live in the boundary. You know, one of the words for sin, there are lots of different words in the Bible for sin. You know, one of them is the idea of missing the mark. One of the most poignant words for sin in the Bible is the word to transgress, transgression. To transgress literally means to step over a line. It's saying, here's the line God has intended for me to live inside I'm going to transgress the line. I'm going to step over the fence. And in the context of marriage, what that looks like is a deliberate act of adultery. It's saying I'm stepping outside of the relational boundaries that God has created for my good and for my protection. I'm going to transgress that boundary. And the moment that you do that, it leads you to misery when you take that deliberate step. Second of all, not only does adultery, is, is adultery a deliberate act, you find also that adultery involves both doing and desiring. I think that's very important. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Do not commit adultery describes the act or the doing of adultery, the deliberate decision to go outside the boundaries of marriage to express physical or romantic intimacy with someone else. So seeking out intimate or romantic fulfillment and anything other than the one safe relationship that God has created for that to be expressed, which is marriage with your spouse, anything beyond that, anything crossing that boundary is a sin. But that's not the only way to commit adultery. Where am I getting that? Well, from Jesus, because the Bible says, in fact, specifically Jesus says, that we commit adultery, not just in our doings, but also in our desires. In fact, stick your finger in Exodus chapter 20, flip over to the book of Matthew. And I want you to see what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five. And listen to me, whether you're single or divorced or married, whatever station of life you're in, this applies to you. Because the reality is any one of us can commit adultery at the level of our desires. Any one of us can commit adultery, what, what the Bible calls adultery of the heart. So let's look at what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 5, and I want to read verses 27 and 28. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who, look at what this says, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus says, I'm not just concerned that you don't commit the act of adultery. I want to even deal with your desires. I want to deal with your eyes. I want to deal with your longings. And there's more than one way to commit adultery. You can commit adultery by actually the act of it or by the desiring of it. Listen to me. When you have a relationship with God, He wants to lead an invasion into your life. He's not just content to deal with the external. He wants to get down even to the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. He wants to encroach. Listen to that. God wants to encroach into your desires. It's a good invasion. God doesn't just want external conformity. If you say, I have technically not committed adultery… But I've thought about it, I've, I've desired, I've looked at someone with lust. Jesus says, in God's eyes, you are an adulterer at heart. And what Jesus wants in our sanctification and our Christ-likeness is not just external conformity to a set of rules. I hope you don't read the Ten Commandments that way. It's about your heart. And Jesus says, I want to get beyond the external, I want to get to the internal, I want to encroach into your desires. He says, I don't want even you to look with lust. To look with lust, listen, is, is not just noticing someone, it's desiring someone. It's not just looking, it's longing. It's, it's a look that lingers. Uh, someone has said that it's the second look that kills. Some, well, someone has uh, described lust as gluttony of the eyes. Martin Luther <clears throat> says this, he says that Jesus is not just addressing the external act of adultery, but every cause of adultery, every motive of adultery, and every means of adultery. That's what Jesus is wanting you to address. The truth is, I told you a few weeks ago that idolatry is a kind of spiritual adultery. But the the reverse is also true. Adultery is a kind of spiritual idolatry. It is desiring something more than you desire God. It's wanting something more than you want God. It's longing for something or someone more than you long for God. It is an expression of the first commandment. By the way, the seventh commandment is also an expression of the eighth commandment. It's theft. It's taking something that doesn't belong to you. But it's, it's ultimately not just your doings, but your desires. And here's the deal. Here's the last thing I want to say about the damage of adultery. It, 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 always, brings, it always brings damage. Adultery is not a victimless crime. There's always damage. I had a professor in college who, uh, as a, an assignment in class one time, he was speaking to a bunch of future pastors. He just said, I want you to take time, and I want you to write down every single relationship in your life that would be affected if you commit adultery. If you've ever gone out to the lake back here on on our our land and tossed a rock into the lake, you'll notice that rock, there's a point of impact, but then there's a ripple effect. And there there are concentric circles. There's ripples that happen, and and adultery works that way. There's concentric circles of damage that happens. And so think think about the concentric circles Of damage that happens when adultery takes place. My my spouse is hurt. Uh, The spouse of the person with whom I'm committing adultery is hurt. The the person with whom I'd commit adultery would be hurt. Uh, My kids would be hurt. My friends would be hurt. My kids' friends, my church, my neighbors. My city, the broader church community, concentric circles, ripple effects of damage. Think about the damage that adultery does to the picture that God intends marriage to portray regarding the gospel. You realize that marriage is a picture of the gospel. The relationship between Christ and the church and a husband and a wife is a beautiful reflection. Peter Lightheart says that in adultery, we seek pleasure without a commitment to a shared life. And so we defy <clears throat> the faithful covenant God. We, we try out multiple partners and thus live a lie about the God who loves one bride. That kind of sin lies about the Creator. The created order is to be a manifestation of the Lord of the covenant. So our intimate faithfulness preaches the gospel when a husband and a wife are faithful to one another. In every way, they become a created symbol of the covenant, the God who keeps his vows to Israel and the new Israel. By keeping the seventh commandment, we dramatize the good news of Jesus, the bridegroom of the church, who gives himself in utter fidelity to and for his bride. So I want you to think about that. I want that to weigh heavily on you when you think about what, what is being forbidden in this command. Realize that God wants what is for your good. He wants what is life for you. He wants what wants what is life and flourishing for your family and for your kids and for your grandkids, and un, adultery undo, undoes all of that. It unravels all of that. It dismantles and disfigures all of that. But I want to end on a hopeful note today, because we see God has a good design for marriage. We know that sin damages what is God's good design. But let me give you some hope today. And and I want to speak to those of you who maybe this is something you have done. Maybe this is something you have desired to do. And I want to just give you a word of gospel hope, and that is this, that the the third truth about marriage is that Jesus can deliver us. Amen? He can deliver us from the destructiveness of our sin, and he can change us from the inside out. That's really good news. Let me just share three pieces of good news with you. Number one, Jesus today can forgive us. And so if you're here today and you've done or desired what is sinful, just know Jesus can make you new. He can forgive you. One of the ways that God is described in the Bible is, and especially in the Old Testament prophets, is, is as a faithful bridegroom to an adulterous bride. That's one of the ways that God has pictured His character. The picture is that we, as His people, are like an adulterer. We run from Him all the time. We're unfaithful to God. And yet, even though we're unfaithful, God is faithful. Even though we fail, God loves us. Even though we uh, uh, rebel, God can forgive us. So think about Israel. Israel constantly wanders from God, and yet God remained faithful to Israel. Isn't that good news? that God always kept his promises, his covenant promises to Israel, even when Israel broke their covenant promises. This is the way Paul puts it in Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so let me just give you some good news. It means that when you and I fail, which we do, either in sins of commission or omission, in our doings or in our desirings, in the area of adultery or any other area, God can forgive us, amen? God can forgive us. He can wipe the slate clean. The Bible says though our sins are scarlet, they can be what? White as snow. If we are willing to repent and believe, if we are really willing to turn from our sin and put our trust fully in Jesus Christ, God can forgive you. And so if that's you today and you say, pastor, I feel under conviction as you're talking about the subject, understand Jesus can deliver you. He can forgive you if you will turn from your sin and put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus. Because Jesus was faithful on our behalf. Even when we're unfaithful, Jesus is faithful. And so He can forgive us. Here's the second gospel truth Jesus can make us new. In other words, not only can Jesus wipe away our past sin, He actually can make us different. And that's really good news, right? The Bible tells us that if we are, uh, if we will uh, turn from our sins and call out to the Lord, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, you need forgiveness and cleansing. You need to be forgiven of your past sin, but you also need to be made new. And the Bible tells us that when you turn to Jesus in faith, He changes you from the inside out. You get a new heart. And with that new heart, guess what? You get new desires. The reason that you commit adultery is because you have disordered desires. Desires for something that that God hasn't intended. But when you come to Jesus and He makes you new from the inside out, He gives you a brand new set of desires. The reality is now, because I'm a Christian, the things I used to love, I don't love those things anymore. The things I love now, I used to not love. What can explain that other than the fact that Jesus has given me a new heart? You see, the problem is not our desires, the fact that we desire God has created us to be desiring creatures. The problem is with the object of our desires. And so often, the object of our desires, we we settle for something that really can't satisfy us, whether that's in an adulterous relationship or maybe it's something entirely different. Maybe you've been chasing after success at work or something else. The object of your longings, the object of desires, your desires is something that won't really satisfy you. But when you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, he becomes the new object of your desires. In fact, he's called the desire of the nations. And he is one who can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. You remember that when Jesus uh, was at the well and there was a Samaritan woman that he was talking to, and uh, she's been having one husband after another. And the, one, the man that he was, uh, she was living with at the time wasn't even her husband. And Jesus says, uh, you know, you're giving me water, but I have water to give you. And if you'll take the water that I have to give you, you will never thirst again. You see, what Jesus was saying is, if if you will come to what I can give you, I will give you something that will satisfy the longings of your heart. And so that's part of what happens when we come to Jesus in faith. He gives us new desires, he gives us a new heart, and he satisfies the longings of our heart. And then thirdly, Jesus He can forgive us, he can make us new, but he can also empower our obedience. He taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Right? That that means that we're to pray for Jesus' help when we're tempted. When we're tempted to wander across the boundary line, we're to call for Jesus. And here's the deal. Jesus can empower our obedience. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. He says, no temptation has come to you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Listen, church, that means that we don't fight temptation and sin on our own. Jesus can help us. If you have today disordered desires, if you have a wandering eye, if you have a thought life that is unholy, understand this, Jesus can help you. Jesus can deliver you. Jesus can make you new. Jesus can empower your obedience. Think about what is said about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to come to the aid. He is able to come help those who are tempted. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us to obey and live Christ-centered lives. Aren't you thankful for that? Let me close with this. C.S. Lewis has written uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. It's one of my favorite book series. Many of you have read uh, that series. One of the lesser-known books in The Chronicles of Narnia is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in that book, Lewis writes about a boy named Eustace who was so selfish that he turned into a dragon. His whole body becomes covered with snaky scales, And he doesn't like it. And so he tries to tear away all the scales off of his skin, but he can't do it. Every time he he would rip with his fingers, he'd rip the scales off. You remember what would happen? The scales would grow back over him. And so Aslan, the lion, had to come and help Eustace get the scales off. And what Aslan did hurt, he dug his claws into Eustace and he ripped the snake-like scales, the dragon scales off of Eustace. And Eustace described it this way. He said, the very first tear that he made was so deep that I've, I thought he had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place. It hurts like Billy. I don't know what that means. I think that's a British statement. It hurts like Billy. Oh, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Listen, we can't take off our scales. We need the Lion of Judah to dig in with his claws and to free us from our sin. And he'll do that if we'll rely on him fully to do that. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And, and here's the deal. When he does what we cannot do for ourselves, we become a living witness to a faithful God. When we seek to live lives of faithfulness in our marriage, we become a witness to a faithful God. Will Williman and Stanley Wass tell the story I'll finish with. He says, we now live in a world that is so morally chaotic that a mundane matter... Like taking care with whom we are intimate renders us into heroes. Some time ago, one of us met a young man at a conference on evangelism in the Episcopal Church. He told me about a young woman he met in California. They were on their first date, it went well. Their conversation was scintillating, they really seemed to be hitting it off. Then, toward the end of the evening, she said, Well, do you want to go to your place or mine? I've got a big day tomorrow. What are you talking about, he asked. You know, she said, don't you find me attractive? Of course, he said, but this is our first date. I hardly know you. We can't sleep together. But I always sleep with guys on the first date, she replied. I don't do that, he said. But why don't you, she asked. Because I'm Episcopalian, he answered. (laughs) We're funny about who we sleep with. Episcopalian, what's that? She asked. He replied, well, it's a kind of Christian. He then told her about his church. She was fascinated. She had never heard of such a thing. So he invited her to visit his church with him the next Sunday. She did. She thought it was the greatest thing she ever saw. Three weeks later, she asked our priest to baptize her. Now she thinks she invented the Episcopal church, (laughs) even though we're not dating anymore. And so Willimon and Hauerwas say, These days, just one person running loose in Southern California who keeps this commandment is enough to attract a crowd. Call it ordinary folk like us getting to be saints. Folks, our marital and relational faithfulness is one way to testify to a faithful God. Amen? And He can empower us to do it. Let's pray together. Father, we want to submit our lives to the good invasion. God, we say, come and take over Our lives, not just the external but the internal, help us to live lives of faithfulness. Lord, for those who are married in the room today, would you empower obedience if there's forgiveness that needs to happen, if there's repentance that needs to happen? Holy Spirit, have your way in us. For those who are single, for those who maybe experience the the hurt of divorce or the damage of adultery, Lord, would you do in hearts what you need to do? Lord, maybe you need to bring healing to a heart. Would you do that? Lord, for those who are maybe patiently waiting for marriage, would you help all who are in this room to be faithful to Jesus above and beyond any other human relationship and allow that to inform every other human relationship? We pray this in your name.